I'm Elena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology and career development. Today's guest is Stephanie Lampkin, founder and CEO of Blendor. Stephanie was named by MIT Technology Review as one of the 35 innovators under 35 in the category of entrepreneurs. Stephanie's experience on applying for a job led her to start Blender on her own at a hackathon. Blender is a job search platform that hides candidates' names and photos in the initial stages of the process. This is helping tackle bias issues that can occur in the hiring process. We talked about how the idea of Blender was formed and how she built a team and has been growing the user base. If you have any feedback on the show, please go ahead and write a review on iTunes or send me a tweet at Tech Women Show. Stephanie Lampkin, founder and CEO of Blender, is joining us today. Welcome, Stephanie, to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the other day, I was listening to an interview that you did with HBCU Startup. And in this interview, you mentioned that your mother was homeless when she was pregnant and that you ended up in D.C. because your auntie was majoring in CS in the in 1984. That's and right. yeah, and you started coding in the mid 90s. And this was way before we had um, groups to support minorities in tech, like uh, women who code, black girls who code, chicks that code. What was the tech scene like back then? It was way more accepting and inclusive than it is now, um, ironically. And I, and I think maybe because it was still emerging and people were really still figuring things out around the internet and things like that. Um, so the, you know, I was on the computer bowl team in high school and even though it was predominantly guys, I never felt like I was being treated as though I knew less because I was a girl. Um, we were all sort of like just really excited about it and figuring things out. I think the dynamics have changed now because sort of these these nerdy white guys have emerged as the dominators of tech. And they've in doing so created this sort of programmer culture, this sort of um, this sort of superiority around that culture of being a little socially awkward and not playing sports and, you know, just coding all day. And um, I think because of that, we're seeing tech be an environment that is not as inclusive and welcoming as it was back then. Yeah. And part of this was due to the uh, movies that were being made in the 80s, I think. Yeah, there's... There's actually even a commercial that Radio Shack put out in 1984 where they were advertising the new computer as a toy for boys. Um, and you'll see like the boys are like playing games and doing all these cool things. And all the sister does is sit back and watch. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, the media has definitely played a role in how kids and society views people who create technology. 
Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little more at the time of your upbringing. What was the one of the earliest memories that you have of coding and technology, like exposure that you had? Um, probably being in Connecticut, playing on my auntie's computer. Um, at the time, she was the only one that I knew that had a computer. And she just had a ton of cool games and peripheral devices. And she was one of those, you know, those technologists that has like the um, tech graveyards, I call them, of just like keyboards and mice and cameras and all these sort of things. And I just thought it was so cool. Um, so that was probably my earliest memory of tech. Yeah. Do you think you were influenced by your auntie? Like you saw her as a role model or you thought of a career in technology due to this exposure? Um, yeah. I mean, not only that, but just like I saw her lifestyle and, you know, she's was able to afford to like travel the world. And she just had a great work-life balance that I didn't see in my other family members. Um, and I think that was really inspirational. Like, wow, I can do this really cool work and, you know, travel all over the world. is It just seemed perfect. So let's talk about applying for a job. I saw you were named by the MIT Technology Review as one of the 35 innovators under 35. So congratulations. Thank you. And you applied for a job in analytics at a major tech company. And you were offered a job in sales instead, despite having engineering and science degrees from Stanford and you also went to MIT. What what did this make you reflect on the fact that you applied for some more of a technical role and you were offered a job in sales instead? Oh my gosh, it made me reflect on everything. It was like just um, one of those um, sort of transformative moments in your life where you just sort of reflect on just all that you've been through to be at this point and just amazed at how it's still not good enough. Um, and that's just sort of how I internalize it. Just like, wow, you know, what more do I have to do? Do I have to get a PhD from Caltech? Like, <laughs> this is crazy. Um, MIT wouldn't well, be happy about that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, so it was, you know, sort of once I got over um, the fact that it wasn't me, it was them, uh, which unfortunately I don't think a lot of people have the capacity to do. I was then sort of just motivated. I was empowered to figure out, okay, how can I prove them wrong? Or how can I make make it so that these sort of things won't happen to the next person that comes after me? Um, and that's really what, that's a lot of what drove the motivation for creating Blendor. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So after this experience of being offered a different job, a job in sales, like you said, you decided to code Blender. Can you explain what Blender is? Yeah, so, um, and it didn't happen immediately. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of throw this out there. So I politely declined the job offer and then just sort of kind of went back and worked on some other startup stuff that I was toiling around with. It wasn't until about six months later when Google published, publicly released their diversity numbers, as did many other tech companies in Silicon Valley, showing that they were 70% male, 2% Black, 3% Latino, and claiming that it was a pipeline problem 
that I felt empowered to create Blendor. So it was really that that sort of event and the media attention and the sort of response that drove Blendor. Um, and yeah, I actually entered a hackathon with the idea. Uh, so I, you know, I said, wow, this whole this Tinder thing is really popular and it's really like the user experience is super simple. It's a little sketchy, but the user experience is really simple. Um, why can't we have that for job matching and particularly for helping companies find this elusive, um, diverse talent, women and minority talent that they think doesn't exist. And in doing so, be able to generate data that shows not only do these people exist, but based on what you say your qualifications are, they meet or exceed it. Um, and that was really the motivation. And I, you know, sort of kind of scoped it out at the hackathon, built a sort of a front end version of it, and I won. And after afterwards, like a ton of people just rushed me and said, oh, my gosh, it's such a great idea. I don't know what you're doing with your life right now, but this is something you should focus on. Um, and it was a little bittersweet because it's like, OK, well, I guess I have to give up my previous startup, which I thought was great. But clearly this is a lot better. Um, and so it took me a couple of months after that. But eventually I just locked myself in my mom's basement and built the first version of the app. Mm -hmm, wow. So I, I've actually seen on the website how the app works, but for the listeners that aren't familiar, can you just explain in a little more detail for you, what you mentioned is a, it's a similar experience to Tinder. However, in Tinder, it's solely focused on the image of a person. What, what does Blender use instead? Because it, from what I understood, it's a, it's a hidden job application, right? They don't see I'm Hispanic or, right? Yeah, so in a way we call it the anti-Tinder, right? Cause Tinder really is built, is based on like superficial data, like your face and things like that um, versus with Blendor. Um, so as a candidate, you log on with Facebook or LinkedIn. We pull in as much data as we can about your work experience, skills, and education history. And then you can identify anything, you know, anything additional that may be missing that you want to add about your education and skills. Um, and then you, we immediately show you a job that matches the, your criteria or matches your qualifications. And you swipe right if you like the job in the company and you swipe left if you don't. And whenever there's a match between you and the recruiter for that job, you get that push notification where you can then message the recruiter um, or they can message you to set up a phone screening, interview, formal application, or whatever the next steps are in the recruiting process. So what the recruiter sees when they're using Blender, they see a list of qualifications. They don't see names. Do they see school names or things like that? Um, so they see your most recent degree. Yeah, so they see your education. They do see the name of the school. It's not as prominent as it is on, on your resume. But we're really focused more on your skills and, and your education than we are degree names because we know that, um, I'm sorry, university names because we know that there can be bias inherent in that. Um, but more importantly, um, our algorithms will generate a fit score for you. So based on the requirements of the job as established by the company and your skills and education as you report, we then generate a score that says, okay, this person meets 80% of the requirements for this job. Um, and that's the data that we want to be more prominent than just the universities you went to and the companies you work for, et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. One of the things that I like is that if I don't know if Blender does this, but for example, there's a statistic that says women apply to a job only when they feel they're 100% qualified versus men when they feel 60% qualified. So it would be cool if it shows if shows you you're qualified for this. Yes, you're not 100% meeting the requirements, but you should still consider this job regardless. Yeah, so what we do so, is we yeah. show you the skills that you have that match the requirements of the role for that very reason. But we don't show you we don't emphasize the skills that you're missing because we want you to we want you to know that if this job shows up in your feed, you are qualified for it for that very reason. Yeah, so we don't want to say we don't want to give messages like that like that oh you're 80% or oh you're 90% that information we're only showing to the recruiter for that very reason. Okay. And I guess the problem for the applicant is addressed with the fact that you only get um, job applications that you're qualified for. That's correct. Okay, that's pretty cool. So this platform is currently being used or has been used by uh, Twitter, Airbnb, Facebook, Microsoft, Intel. What has been the reception or feedback from these companies? Have you gotten an idea? Yeah, so those companies are on our platform. They aren't, the ones you mentioned aren't actively using it yet. They will be though this month. Um, so with our with our beta companies, um, the feedback has been really good. Um, probably the most valuable to us is that they're seeing candidates from, they're matching with and, and potentially hiring candidates from backgrounds that they traditionally don't recruit from, from schools that they traditionally don't, um, identify qualified people from. Um, so that's really exciting for us to hear that we're able to uh, provide a pipeline of people that would have otherwise been overlooked on other platforms. Mm-hmm. How do you measure the success of your product mm. in a general idea? Yeah. Well, there's a couple different ways. Um, one is obviously if we are um, providing more we are resulting in more diverse hiring than other tools. Um, oh, okay. That, and when I say diverse, that, that's uh, female, underrepresented minority, LGBTQ veteran, and disabled persons. Um, if we can execute well on getting those people placed more than the traditional LinkedIn, Indeed, Monsters, et cetera, of the world, um, then that's a big win for us. Um, the other thing is really just driving um, behavioral changes within these companies around unconscious bias and hiring and the recruiting process in general. So one of the things that we're doing is we're patenting an inclusion index called Blend Score, and this is us rating companies based on how effective they are in actually recruiting and retaining um, people, diverse people, people from all sorts of backgrounds. And so um, it measures things like how many women and people of color they have in executive leadership, um, if they've done a, a gender pay gap analysis or, or audit and made improvements based on that, um, how are women and minorities being retained and promoted? Um, if there are things like uh, um, standard maternity leave programs or women's mentorship programs or employee resource groups, like we want to create this score to not only bring more transparency to individual job seekers around um, how inclusive companies are, but also create an environment where companies feel as though they can, they should compete 
on improving these metrics. And if we see that sort of behavior, um, I think that will be a big sign of success. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is working in conjunction with the with the companies, right, that are on board. That's correct. Okay. In order to get a blend score, you have to be a Blendor company. Okay. So let, let's talk about building a team and uh, participating at the startup competition and hackathons. You mentioned that this idea you worked on in a hackathon, right? Mm-hmm earlier okay were you coding it by yourself Uh, what was the process like what what technologies did you start off with yeah um that's interesting and this is really i tell people the story of my life so i you know the, the way hackathons work for people that aren't familiar is you show up in the morning and you know they tell you the rules blah 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 and then you come up with an idea um because you're really not supposed to go in with pre-existing ideas it really should be an idea that you just came up with that day or the night before. Um, And then you pitch your idea to the room. And if people like it, they say, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. Let's form a team. And that's how teams are created. No one wanted to join my team. And so I literally went from table to table doing my pitch over and over again. And everyone sort of smiled and said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Good luck. But no one wanted to join. So I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm just going to build it myself. And so You know, you only get about 12 hours. Sometimes hackathons can be like 24 hours or 48 hours. This one was just like a nine to, uh, I don't even think it was nine to nine. It was like a seven to seven sort of thing. Um, so there isn't a lot of time to do a lot of code. So I really more so focused on the front end development. And I just use Twitter Bootstrap, which is my favorite. It's to me the easiest way to get something up and running um, just to sort of put together a working prototype, a visual working prototype. And that was enough um, for me to win. And then, of course, after I won, everyone was like, oh, I knew you were going to win. It was such a great idea. I was like, what? No, you didn't. Otherwise, you would have joined my team. (laughs) Wow. Um, So, yeah, a lot of bandwagon fans. Um, But in terms of uh, taking that initial idea to actually the minimum viable product, I just did a ton of online research of what is the best way to get a mobile app up and running as quickly as possible, Um, whether it be HTML5 app or hybrid or native. And I decided on creating a hybrid app, which I used um, this technology called Ionic for, which is sort of like a Twitter bootstrap for mobile. Um, And uh, and yeah, it worked great. And I was able to literally have it on my phone. And so I would go to different tech events and pull people aside and say, hey, you know, let me get your time two minutes. Let me show you how this app works. Um, And it was great. Wow, that's awesome. And uh, like you said, you did this by yourself. Mm -hmm. However, later on, you obviously built a team. How did you build your current team? Yeah, so I pretty much um, reached out to people that I've worked with in the past and just said, hey, you know, this is what I'm doing. I know we've worked well together. There was one person who was referred to me. Um, but initially, my first team members were non-technical. I was sort of taking the lead on being the CTO, and I just wanted sort of a supporting cast. Um, and then I realized that, okay, I really need a technical person as well to help me with kind of furthering the product roadmap. And that's um, that's right around the time I, I met my um first engineer and he and I were friends and, you know, I had known about his work before. And so he came on board. So there was an evolution of just sort of identifying 
things, gaps that needed to be filled and then finding people that I knew or people within my network that could, um, that could come on board. And one interesting problem that, or challenge when developing a new product is getting people to use it. For example, you can have the app like Blender with no users because there are no jobs and there are no jobs because there are no users. And I've definitely seen this in apps that I've downloaded where where I'm like, well, the data is not there. So how how did you tackle getting people on board when you were first starting out? Yeah, so there's a saying, fake it till you make it. Um, and that's real. <laughs> so our first, the first goal was getting the jobs. And so I literally manually created about 350 jobs. It took maybe a week. Fake, fake jobs? No, there were real jobs, right? We'd go on LinkedIn oh. and just manually oh take gosh. the data. Yeah. And that's so smart. Yeah. And it would be for companies that we knew we were going to work with. So it wasn't like they were just random companies. It was the companies that we were going to pitch to. Right. And so it worked out perfectly because it's like, okay, we already have a few of your jobs on the platform and we already have users that are interested in these jobs. Look, here they go. So now you should actually be you should sign up and post the jobs that you really want, because, you know, we've been able to demonstrate that there's demand for it. Oh, wow. that That's so cool. I love that. Yeah. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and as for your user reach, did you advertise for Blender, like for app, mostly for applicants, not companies? Um, like what was that? How did you expose your product? Again, just starting with our the networks, our networks of our team. So I probably have like 5,000 LinkedIn connections. And then we did a ton of pitching and got a great great press and then I had a sign up button actually we still do have a sign up uh button on the landing page and so literally just thousands and thousands and thousands of people signed up on on the website in that same interview that you did with HBCU startup one of the things that you mentioned was that not everyone is cut out for the startup life and I've also heard this several times what characteristics do you have that make you fit to be in the startup life? Um, imagine, or what do you think it takes? It's it's really a lot of grit and perseverance. Imagine, like, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. Just, you know, those, whenever you see someone who has to, like, go through some sort of hazing process or, like, imagine just walking in a line, walking down a line where you're just being hit by paintball, uh, paintballs just nonstop, but you have to keep walking, keep looking forward. Um, every now and then, you know, you may get a treat, a bottle of water, but then again, the paintballs keep coming, but you have to keep walking straight. It's just like this almost insane perseverance and you're blindfolded, right? Add that to it because you don't even really know where you're going all the time. Because um, that's what it is, because you're there's always going to be moments of self-doubt and people are constantly going to be telling you no. Um, but you really have to believe that what you're doing is important and it's going to work, um, because the odds are against you. Um, and I think the other aspect of it is flexibility. A lot of people don't have the capability to understand when they need to pivot. 
um, we, we sort of get so laser focused on one solution uh, to one problem when there really are multiple solutions that could address a single problem. And you just have to sort of be receptive to the market forces, your customer voices, all of the different things that factor into how you maybe need to, to change your course of action. Um, you have to be very agile. So, you know, I say perseverance, agility, a little bit of insanity and resourcefulness, right? So you're not going to always have the money that you need to get something done and you have to figure out, okay, how can I still incentivize this person to work for me? Or how can I still, um, you know, get that thing I need if I currently, even though I currently don't have the resources for it. Um, and I think for me growing up really poor um, at, a, at a time just gives me that innate ability to be resourceful because oftentimes we were put in a situation where we didn't have everything we needed at that particular moment, but we had to make the best of what we had. That That's very interesting. And I've actually heard also what you said, perseverance from at startup school and from other people like Paul Graham. And it also showed showed in, the, in that hackathon early on that you participated. Like a lot, I can imagine a lot of people saying, well, I don't have a team. Nobody was interested in my idea. I'll just join another team. Whereas you, developed it yourself and one so that's that's pretty cool yeah i didn't feel so, like i had a choice <laughs> yeah but yeah so you attended demo day at the white house what was that like what happens at this event it was amazing um and i wasn't you know i was invited but i didn't get so there were like maybe 200 250 people there But only 10 or so, 12, 10 or, 10 or 12 startups actually got to have a table set up, um, which was, you know, which is great. I was just happy to be there. Uh, but it was super cool. You know, you go through a lot of security. But um, Barack is one of the first presidents, I think, in like eight decades to allow people to take pictures inside the White House. So, you know, you could just take pictures. You could walk around. You could touch stuff. You could see stuff. Um, it was super cool. And it was sort of a surreal moment for me because, as you mentioned, um, uh, I grew up with very humble beginnings. But not only that, I was born in Washington, D.C. And my mom, you know, gives this used to give this testimony in church that um, she would buy drugs in D.C. and sometimes with me in the backseat. And so for me to be in the White House just blocks away from where my mother used to buy drugs And I'm here representing my startup. Like it was just, it was emotional. It was really emotional and a moment in time that I will never forget. And to top it off, you know, we all, they kind of all shuffle us into this room where the president then comes on stage and, you know, he stands behind that podium. And at some point during his speech, he says the next Steve Jobs might be named Stephanie. And I almost just jumped out of my seat, but I didn't want to get shot down by Secret Service. But it was, <laughs> it was just like, it, it felt like a dream. Um, It, it really did. Oh, that's awesome. Was, yeah, super, super grateful for the experience. Wow. Congratulations on that also. <laughs> Thanks. Right now, we're in the information age. And you've also referred to the fact that we're not in the industrial age. What opportunities do you think that we're not taking advantage of? 
People. Do you, do you people. S- human capital, yeah. Human capital is the largest res- wasted resource. Um, I think this election, these election results are the biggest wake-up call of that. Um, obviously, we've ignored middle America um, and, and professionals that did excel and thrive during the industrial age that have now find themse- found themselves disenfranchised and left out of this tech- technology age. Um, and so, yeah, now we're tasked with figuring out how we educate these people so that they can be active in this new economy um, and or how do we use technology to enable them so that they can have, um, you know, just their basic needs met, uh, whether it be healthcare, transportation, housing, et cetera, um, given um, we, we haven't, we're, we're in a very different era for the way that people live and work and how things are automated versus requiring uh, human labor. And also, I forgot who said this quote, but it went something like, now we all have more power than the president, like with the, with the way we are with technology now, mm-hmm. the, the, all the tools that we have access to. So mm-hmm. that's the information age, I think. Yeah, that's very, very true. Um, and Donald Trump himself will say and admit that a lot of his claim to fame has been through social media. Like, and, you know, everyone's yeah. talking about the fake news on Facebook. And we're definitely uh, we definitely have way more power through these new mediums of communication and mm-hmm. accessing news and information um, yeah. than ever before. So it's with that comes a, a huge responsibility that I think we're just now figuring out. Yeah, finding ways to educate people for this information age. Yeah, yeah. Well, Stephanie, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I hope it was valuable.